Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to Schooled with Carla Hulse. Join Carla as she explores K-12 education disruption and has deep dive conversations with ed leaders, ed tech, ed foundations, ed professional service organizations, and ed educators who school her on ed innovations and their impact on educational policy across the country. Here's Carla. Welcome to Schooled. I'm your host, Carla Hulse, and today is my first episode for season two. And joining me today is the Honorable Paula Penn-Napret. So Paula is the president and founder of PNNA. PNNA is a research and information resource center for diverse organizations and industries. So speaking of diverse, Paula's career is as diverse as the organizations and entities that seek her guidance and counsel. Paula has published a plethora of papers. She's a highly sought-after presenter, and she's also published many books, most notably a book I think we're probably going to spend a lot of time talking about. It's called Morning by Morning, How We Homeschooled Our African-American Sons to the Ivy League. Paula has also served as a securities consultant for AT&T's American TransTech, and she has um, been an adjunct professor at the University of North Florida as well as Franklin University. So without further ado, welcome to Schooled, Paula. It is such a pleasure. It's really an honor to have you on my podcast today. Well, thank you. I am, I am super excited to be here. <laughs> so let's get started. So as I mentioned in my introduction, you are the founder and president of PNNA. And I talked a little bit about what you all do, but give me a little more information about what you do, why you do it, who you do it for, so our audience members know how wonderful you are. Sure. Well, we, uh, PNNA Inc. is a demographic research and statistical analysis firm. So, which is not as boring as that sounds. So we started, <laughs> I love statistics. So that, that, that so, makes me excited. Well, thank you. All right. So we, I launched the business in 1986 and the bulk of what we do is we collect and track data on things like education trends, employment trends, immigration trends. And we look at it internally and externally. So internally, we look at how, who's currently working for you? who's setting policy, who's supervising your workforce. And if it looks like there will be significant demographic shifts, what recalibrations need to happen to maximize productivity and high-performing teams? And then we do the same kind of analysis externally, who are your customers, your clients, your constituents. If it looks like there's going to be a significant demographic shift, what recalibrations need to happen to maintain and maximize customer service, constituent services, market share. So we look at data 
and make decisions that have ethical implications. But the focal point is this issue about productivity. Yeah, I think what's critical to our conversation today and really for everyone listening to this podcast is something when I was reading about the kind of core of your organization. Um, In that bio, it talked about helping organizations move from the actuality of today to the potentiality of tomorrow. I think I think it's very cogent for what we're going to talk about today in this idea that we're in this kind of post-pandemic world of schooling. So what is the actuality that we're in today? And I I kind of have these kind of three buckets. There's this kind of racial awakening that happened starting in 2020. Um, and then there was this um, kind of schooling revolution, but it, it was a revolution because we were forced to, right? Schools were shuttered. So people were scrambling for, well, maybe I'll do homeschooling. Well, maybe I'll do charter because this charter is kind of still open. Uh, Maybe I'll do private school because this private school is kind of open. Maybe I'll unschool. So there was this kind of schooling revolution that happened. And then the third for me is kind of where we are now is, um, and I'm sure you get into this with your organization, is this federal response, from the U.S. Department of Ed. And for the most part, the first response was just money. We're just going to flood school districts and states with trillions of dollars. And so now it's the, now do we do, what do we do with that money? Also in my intro, I talked about your work in the homeschooling world, because there is a rise now, in particular in the African-American community, for parents saying, you know what? The traditional schools weren't working before COVID. Um, They definitely aren't working post-COVID, so maybe homeschooling can be a viable option. So maybe let's start there. What what really is the actuality that we're living in in K-12 education? What are the statistics telling us? Can you help us kind of unravel that a bit? Well, yeah, a little bit. Um, (laughs) A little bit. I think that I think that your I think that your analysis of this is is really helpful because I think part of what is challenging and not surprising is there's a lot of emotional energy around education. So whether you're coming at it from the experience of a participant, there's a lot of emotional energy. If you are coming at this conversation from the perspective of a parent, you clearly have a lot of emotional energy. If you are coming to this conversation vested as a practitioner, there's a whole nother kind of of emotional energy. And if you're coming at it from a sort of capitalist, almost venture capitalist perspective, Mm -hmm. then there's a whole nother level of emotional energy. So even though often there are cogent arguments presented, if you scratch the surface, it's like, ah, hair on yeah. fire. Yes. And so I think that, I think that makes it hard. I think yes. what you're bringing to this a level of, I'm not going to say detachment, but a sort of clear-eyed assessment of looking at education as a process, which I think Correct. is really helpful because I think frequently people see this conversation and they're funneling it through the conspiracy lens. Yeah. And I don't think that I don't think that's helpful. So speaking directly to your question, I don't have the data on how the demographics of homeschooling have changed as a result of COVID. Yeah. I know that pre-COVID, the fastest growing demographic in homeschooling was black families. Mm-hmm. So even before COVID, 
Black people were the fastest growing demographic. And even before I saw the numbers, I knew that they were because I was being contacted by dominant homeschooling groups. Mm-hmm. And by dominant, I mean Caucasian white presenting yep. homeschoolers. And that was odd because that was not a group that we'd had a lot of positive interaction and engagement with. Hmm. So, I mean, because when Morning by Morning, when Random House published Morning by Morning, How We Homeschooled Our African-American Sons of the Ivy League in 2003, that was my second book on homeschooling. So I'd already been doing some work in that field. And by the time that Morning by Morning came out in 2003, all three of my children were already in college. Yeah. So when that second book came out, I was I was sort of surprised that these big homeschooling convention groups, at first I thought, well, maybe they don't know. And so then later, when I started getting inquiries, I thought, oh, there must be a whole bunch of black people coming into this arena now. Because these are market-driven um, perspectives. And even though often people who are on the front end of these conversations presented as a moral thing, an ethical thing, a religious thing, it's fundamentally a capitalist thing. And mm-hmm. I, don't have, I don't have an issue with that because I too am a capitalist. Mm-hmm. I'm a Christian and a capitalist. <laughs> Do those two things go together? <laughs> they, they can't. Capitalism okay. doesn't have to be toxic, right? Okay, okay. It doesn't okay. Have to, just like masculinity doesn't have to be toxic. Yeah. It often is, but doesn't have to be. So you raise a really interesting point, though, Paula. I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, um, so I don't know if you saw it yesterday, the Center on Reinventing Public School released this paper, and it really is around this idea. There are leaders of color around the country who are leading this endeavor, mainly in the homeschooling space, and kind of not really alternative schooling, but kind of additional schooling because traditional schooling has failed their kids. And so as I was listening to you, I'm thinking, are, is this just a capitalistic response? Like, oh, we can, it's now a cottage industry, or is this legitimately an ethical thing to be doing? Because when I was reading this report, I kept thinking, well, you knew this before COVID. You knew the schools in Oakland weren't working before COVID or in DC or Chicago or Tuscaloosa. So it's like, why now does a light bulb have to come on? And so that's what I've been grappling with. I'm like, people, COVID didn't do anything dramatically different except keep your kids at home. Right. The same the same curriculum that you're getting at home, you're, you know, that you were getting at home was happening in school. The same kind of lack of, you know, parent engagement that was happening during COVID was happening before. So I'm trying to understand if this if this kind of new way of schooling is it just a, a capitalist grab? No, <clears throat> I think it's both and. I don't think it's a dichotomous either or. I think mm-hmm. it's a unital both and. Okay. I think that we come, we're all in process. And so we come to awareness at different points. So starting with this idea of, of noble intent, I want to, I definitely want to make space for the fact that for some people, the pandemic was a hard stop. Mm -hmm. And in that space, people looked around and said, you know what? I just didn't see it before. Hmm. So there's that. And I think that can be hard for somebody like you who 
has seen the thing about vision and and the lord really had to reveal this to me if everybody can see it it's not a vision oh and that really helped me because when we decided to homeschool our kids i was like why are people acting so cuckoo kachoo crazy about this i didn't have to ask do you see what i see <laughs> i know you see what i see okay and the reason i know people saw what we were saying is I can remember once my husband and I were at a school board, a public school board meeting. And so, you know, the microphone is a narcotic anyway. <laughs> right. Yes. You know, the microphone yes. is a narcotic. And people get up, not that they don't have valid issues, but also there's that sense of, I, I have a manifesto I want read into the record. Right. Okay. Right. Now, this is not going to help my fourth grader pass that test, but, you know, I got them told. <laughs> Right. Right. Yeah. And as we were leaving, Charles looked at me and said, you know, if we came back here 20 years, there would be different people. Yes. Be market, mounting the same arguments. Yes. Because none of this is happenstance. Yes. This is an institutionalized process. Yes. Everyone is vested in it. Correct. And as long as you are in it, you are part of it. Correct. The bad and the ugly. So I think the pandemic for some people was that hard stop. And that was the first time that they had a chance to really catch their breath and say, wait a minute. Mm. Wait a minute. This is this is not working. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it's just greed, but greed definitely has a part in this. And there's also the place for, again, this diunital, some mm -hmm. people who are I'll use air quotes too. Some people yeah. who are our leaders yes. really do have the best interest of the collective in mind. So we have people like a Marva Collins. Right. When 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 Morning by Morning was about to be published, you know, like Random House, like all major publishing houses, they're in it to make money too. Correct. So it, they want other people to get behind a new book, right? Because that's going to generate buzz and that's going to, result in sales. So they sent galley drafts of that book out to a whole bunch of our prominent black leaders. Mm -hmm. Crickets. Wow. Crickets. Okay. I would name names, but you know, that would be, that would be wrong. We can I'm edit gonna, it out. I'm not going to up the spot, but I'm just going to tell you a whole bunch of super prominent our leaders who have so much to say. Yeah. Had nothing to say about that book. Marva Collins said, this is, this is so powerful and it is a continuation and expansion of the pioneering work that I already did because I already know yeah. the potential of Black children. Yeah. So it's getting to that point, so when you embarked on homeschooling with your kids, were you and your husband thinking that this was some kind of political statement you were making or an extraction, and I'm going to use a movie ref reference, an extraction from the matrix kind of, because you mentioned this idea of this is a, this is a structure, this is right. a system, this education. And so did you look up and go, we've got to extract ourselves from this to then maybe change it? Because when you're inside of it, it is much harder to change the beast. It, was, right. was that even in your mind? Or Again, I think it was a diunital both and. Okay. What we did have was cultural capital. And 
that's because both of us come from families that have been in this country since the late 1700s that we know of. We both come from families that have been pursuing post-secondary education as long as it's been legal for Black people to do so. Mm-hmm. And both of us come from families that have been actively engaged in Black liberation theology, even before that that nomenclature attached. So my maternal great-grandmother was at Bluefield State Teachers College in 1898. Charles's paternal grandfather was at Morehouse, 1898. His grandfather's mother was in the first class of what would become Spelman in 1881. We are not, this is not our first rodeo. Right. We've been doing the school thing for a minute. And part of what became abundantly clear was the performance metrics of Black children. And this is where our work as demographers kicked in. Mm -hmm. We already knew that African-American male children were at the bottom of every measurement scale with the notable exception of athletics. Of course. And that was constant, whether they were in suburban, mm-hmm. urban, or rural schools, mm-hmm. whether they were in two-parent households, single-parent households, whether their parents were educated or whether their parents were uneducated, whether they had PhDs or had dropped out of high school. Mm-hmm. The other constant was... of classroom teachers in grades K through 12 are Caucasian white women. So this intersection between race and gender Mm -hmm. in the classroom situation is problematic, especially when it's not analyzed. It's not examined, it's not explored. And so the idea that, so part of it was very much self-focused on our spawn. Right. Right. These are are my spawn. And you all are messing up. Right, right. But the other part of it was being able to put that in some perspective because we didn't just sort of know about our family's history. Most of the people in our family lived to be ridiculously old. So, you know, we, we weren't sort of speculating about, is this, is this normal? Is this, mm-hmm. does this happen all the time? Mm-hmm. We decided to, as use your matrix example, to extricate ourselves from this. Yeah. And there was a financial incentive because the private school, the independent day school where they were enrolled expelled them because we were tardy on the tuition. That was the, that was the standard line. Right? <laughs> um, it was really because, and this is the other part of the institutional aspect of systems of white supremacy. It is dependent upon a certain level of participation by those who are being oppressed. Correct. This, this Correct. idea I, you don't have to tell me my place. I yes. already know my place. Correct. And if one of us steps out of place, it becomes really imperative that the institution really address that in a very extreme and public way. Correct. So even though Damon and Charles and Evan were utterly adorable and extremely well behaved and super, super smart. They were expelled and it was a very public thing because one day they were at school and the next day they were not. Mm-hmm. And all their little friends were like, where, where, calling on the phone, where are you guys? We've been expelled. And I helped promote that. I called everybody that I knew that was on the board and said, just FYI, yeah, the, I had a picnic. <laughs> and now I, my kids are expelled because <laughs> I've had a picnic. Black families and that was deemed racist even though all summer, the white administrators 
at the school and parents at the school were at all white spaces at country clubs and nobody felt like, oh, that's so exclusionary. So that whole idea of like, I'm, I see it, I yeah. put this in perspective and I'm out. Our hope was we saw this as an experiment. So we did have a mission statement, a vision statement and a 10 year plan. And it was in writing. It wasn't like something we talked about. Right, right, right. It was in writing. We reviewed it. We drafted it, second, third versions, and then we shared it with the children. And part of our, our hypothesis was if children are validated holistically, intellectually, spiritually, and physically, academic excellence will happen as a foregone conclusion because it's in the nature of humans to seek knowledge. It's the nature of children to ask questions. That's the nature of humans. Right. And when that curiosity stops, it's because of an external force. Right. And so we decided to create a parallel universe. We developed our own curriculum because as Charles said, why would we buy curriculum from the very people who are vested in a pedagogy that supports and sustains systems of white supremacy? So we developed our own curriculum. We couldn't do all the teaching ourselves because we were still running this business. So we hired graduate students at Ohio State, the Ohio State University, who were African or African-American. We only wanted our children taught by adult versions of themselves. So most of the people that we hired were Black men to teach math, biology, and French. Mm -hmm. So as this was unfolding, I had hoped that when other people saw the results, they would say, oh, this might be worth exploring. Yeah. And I was disappointed even during COVID. I had suggested to many families that I know, this is a perfect opportunity to pool your resources. Correct. And make the magic happen. Just like you pool your resources when you get ready to go to the Essence Music Festival. Uh-oh. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. So miss me with, I don't have the time or I don't have the money because you find the time and the money to get your hair did on the regular. Yeah. So I think it's a different way of thinking about this process from both ends. So for our listeners, what Paula is engaging in right now is what's called a non-mixed company conversation. This is, these are the things that we say amongst ourselves (laughs) because they're difficult. The moment you, you go down this path, Paula, and you know it, you get called names, you're betraying the race or you're elitist or you're classist. So and until we can have legitimate tough conversations about how we are how we are prioritizing education because that that statistic you gave earlier about the successes of black children right regardless of class we are right. still at the bottom as a as a That's as a group. group of people it doesn't yeah. matter if your last name is well, I was going to say Cosby <laughs> Cosby yeah. or- that's but a I bad example. Say, <laughs> or I know or Jordan, mean. right? Or if Oprah had kids, globally as a group, we would still be uh, performing at the at the bottom on all those kinds of indicators. And so, what does that mean? What does that mean? And whose responsibility is it to change yeah. that dynamic? Well, I think part of it is just what you talked about: not being comfortable engaging in rigorous intellectual, critical thinking. 
So, you know, that, that idea that there are certain sort of things that we can't talk about because uh-huh. that's, and see, so far, part of the reason why that's not an issue for me is, A, I'm, I'm too old to care. So there's that. So I'm almost 68. Right. Um, so, secondly, miss me with the classes foolishness. This is not a class issue. And if you were really concerned about class issues, then you know what we wouldn't be doing? Fraternities and sororities in the bullet. Oh, you're so funny. My aunt talks about that all the time. Um, yeah, so, so none of is, that. Yeah. But so kids, yeah. this process thing, because this is what I think is really important on both ends of the spectrum. So yes, I can talk about systems of white supremacy and patriarchy and how they support this institutionalized process by which this school to prison pipeline is a real documented thing, mm-hmm. right? We know it's, so when people say, well, what about the socialization of homeschool? Everybody who's in prison right now went to school. Correct. So part of what we need to be thinking about is not is school a place where socialization happens, but is the kind of socialization that happens at school beneficial to our children? Mm-hmm. Because in fact, the socialization at school is designed to maintain and support a capitalist structure in which people understand where they fit in the hierarchy. Right. If you step outside of that space, the consequences are severe, which is why people don't do it more often. It's not about capability. Right. Consequences. So again, I go back to a point you raised earlier. So then how, who's responsible for the destruction? Because I've been advocating for the destruction. This just needs to be dismantled. This kind of, you know, the incremental progress that we're making. And, you know, uh, a report was released yesterday by IES about the pandemic learning loss. And if you look at all of the, the statistics, the learning loss from the last year looks just like their learning loss that happened before no child left behind. It's like, right. and, and so it's like, how long do we keep spinning on this wheel before we say enough is enough? Because clearly the pandemic wasn't enough because everyone's back to school and back to normal. And everyone's so happy to be back in person and happy to be having proms. And we're just back to the old, same old stuff. And I keep thinking this was an opportunity. This doesn't work. And we, we are all playing a role in this. We are all playing a role in our, and I'm speaking just right now as a black woman, in the destruction of black children. So yeah. when are we going to say, we have to say, no, we don't want to be at the bottom of every academic and social emotional indicator. And the reason we are is because we're contributing to this. We're sending our children to their own death, basically. Yes. And yes. so when, when are we going to say, you know what, that's, that's it. Because I keep thinking, Paula, again, why why are we bought into it? Why are the adults bought into this? Is it money? Is it that we both, uh, what is it? Well, I think depending upon where we sort of enter the conversation, you're going to get a different answer to that question. Hmm. So I think for a lot of Black people, so for example, when we decided to step outside, yeah, and even though we didn't decide to step outside, we got kicked out. We just didn't right. get back, right? right? right. So right. after everyone, after everybody found out, right. then we started getting calls. You know, we all said some things we didn't mean. We really want the boys to come back. And mm. Charles was like, that would be fundamentally unethical. Now that you have revealed that, in fact, my children's well-being does not matter to you, ethically, I cannot re-enroll them. 
Right. People found that to be extreme. And I know that I'm not speculating about that. I know that because a number of black people felt like they needed to come and tell me. I didn't ask them, hey, you guys, what y'all think about this? People came to tell me this is wrong. This is a bad decision. And literally, how dare you? And the how dare you part was some of that's because Charles's uncle, James Neighborhood, argued Brown v. Board of Education with Thurgood Marshall before he became dean of the law school at Howard and president of Howard. And so people were like, you, you of all people. And then mm-hmm. I had evil Paula and explain that Brown v. Board of Education was not about the choice of individual parents. Right. It was institutional analysis. Right. And as right. a parent, I had absolutely every right to do this. I think for some people, the idea of access to elite public schools and yeah. private schools, the status is so powerful mm-hmm. that even when people see what's happening at the most elite institutions, right. people see what's happening to their children. And it's like, it's worth it, though. Yeah, it's, it's worth it. Now, people won't say that's why it's worth it. They'll say things like, well, better access to better colleges. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's not really what's happening. Then you have... Is there this kind of like um, internal need to um, fit in, be included, integrate? So g- getting to Brown v. Board, integration, that ultimately if we as Black people can just be integrated, that would be the success. And maybe that's why we're so wedded to just Mm -hmm. investing into public education as it is, that we will just, no matter what, we will be invested into it. I think, I think, I'm not saying that that's not, was never part of the analysis, but I think what was the real driver was the recognition that Plessy v. Ferguson was not just mythology. It was an example of Kant's lying promise. You know, it's not true as you're saying it. So you're saying separate, but equal, when in fact, you know, it's separate. It is not equal. It's not even close. Correct. So I think the drive was if we're all paying taxes, mm-hmm. right? So, and that, you know, this whole difference between how the U.S. educational system is funded versus what happens internationally. Correct. So in the United States, it's all based on your zip code. Correct. So, you know, every kid does not have the same access. Every kid. And so I think the driver in Brown was, Every kid should have access. And if the best stuff is at the white school, then I want my kid there. Mm-hmm. Not because I don't think Ruby Bridges' parents were thinking, I really want my our six-year-old to face hordes right. of adult white people yelling and screaming and cursing at her. Correct. I think they thought this is the price we have to pay for our child to have access to an excellent education. And I think sometimes as situations evolve, we realize that the things that we used to have to do, I don't have to do that anymore, right? I don't have to do that anymore. Current state. So it's 2022. We've got a trillion dollars now in the hands of every school district in this country. What should we be doing? What is the ethical thing that we should be doing to fix K-12 public education? Well, yeah. 
That's a big, that's a big question. It is, but that, that's where we are. Unless there really isn't a problem. There is a, there is a <laughs> problem. Um, but it's, and the fact that it's a big problem does not mean that it's insurmountable. Correct. We have not okay. had the, uh, an educational version of truth and reconciliation. Yeah. Okay. That, we have way too many apologists, right? Oh. We have way too many apologists who have excuses and explanations mm -hmm. for missing the performance metrics. Correct. Right. So we can't fix this if, you know, what. Well, there's, there, well, there's, there's a business around that, though. There's a legitimate cottage industry around the apology. That's the web we have spun. And I'm trying to get you know, out from that web. Part of what is important about whether we're talking about Hindu scriptures, the teachings of Buddha, the Quran, all of these sort of religious texts give us insight into human dynamics, right? Mm -hmm. and, they, and they really present some fundamental questions. So this issue about what do we need to do about school? Mm -hmm. This is a variation on the man at the pool of Bethesda who's been sitting at the side yeah. of the pool for 30 years saying, you know, I just don't, I know I'm, I'm jacked up. If I could get in the water, I could be healed, but I don't yeah. have anybody. And how am I going to get down there? And, you know, Jesus comes along and basically says, you could have rolled your right <laughs> tail in the water by now. You've been right. sitting 30 years talking about it. Yeah. Right. Yes. You've been sitting here talking about it. You could have just step by step, just bumped your butt down into the water. Yes. So the question is, would you be healed? Some people like being sick. Correct. They, they do not. They like it just like this. We have business because some of us like it just like this. We have gun violence because people, Ohio, the governor of Ohio just this week signed a bill allowing teachers to bring guns I to saw that. with only 25 hours of training. I saw that. And then like some kind of every year evaluation certification. Right. Thing. That's making my eye twitch. Thank you. <laughs> now, given the disparate level of discipline enacted against black children, who thinks having teachers armed is a good idea? And the whole mythology of the only thing to stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun. We yeah. just saw that in Texas, that that's mythology because all those police were there and couldn't figure out how to do anything with that. Right. Right. The idea that more guns is the answer. In fact, we like it. And until we have a conversation about- and what Or what about certain groups failing? That we love. Uh, we love, yeah. We uh, love it. We need that. Yeah, we, yes, we do. We need we that. Need we that. need it. So much so that when we see people in those designated groups being successful, we are angry and outraged. So sometimes we have to stop talking about the problem and fixing the problem. Yeah, get, right? getting into action or relinquishing it, assuming we have to relinquish, relinquish it to some kind of established entity. But we don't have to. Right. It, we, we don't really have can take it upon ourselves. But, you know, I'm a big, a big proponent of deciding, are you going to be a prime mover or a reactor? Are you going to exercise the power that you have? Because all of us have the same level of personal power. Everybody, everybody. And we know that because we can certainly see it in the negative. 
You can have a group of people, whether they're kids or adults, and everybody's getting along fine. One person can come along and blow that spot up. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. And they don't have no many authority. times I am that person, but that's okay. But, and that's, that's exercising our power, right? That's <laughs> I, I'm, I'm gonna have to disrupt this. <laughs> we all have that power. That's the first thing is recognizing. And the second thing is I'm not going to be discouraged by all the people who are gonna come along and tell you it's wrong. Right. Because if right. that's not happening, if you're not getting pushback, you ain't doing nothing. Correct. Right. right. It's yeah, it's the being prepared for the pushback, which is I think where many districts have been the last year, right? The pushback at the school board meetings, the pushback wherever in the media, right? That, you know, now we're banning books, now we're, you know, it's it's gotten so interesting out there. And so I think people are like, Well, it's too hot. It's the the heat's too hot. I can't really do what I and think needs to be done. It's okay if you want to say that. But what's not okay is to say the heat's too hot and I'm really upset about what's happening to my kid. Yes. Because apparently yeah. what you really are concerned about is the heat. Exactly. No, no, no. That's Absolutely. That's what people are it. concerned about. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. It's, 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 yeah. Yeah. Just own that. Oh and yeah. just know that. I mean, I think when we started this conversation, you talked about the emotionality that people get into when having this kind of conversation. Um, and... And I think, and maybe I'm wrong, I think a lot of that kind of throwing up the emotion is because no one wants to get to solutions. Well, I think even more serious than that, Mm -hmm. people don't want to have a public discussion about the fact that you, in fact, like this. Yes, yes. And so I think until we, but what's good is, I think this kind of, as you mentioned, racial awakening, class-based awakening. I think a lot of people who had been coasting, one of the things that happens when you are middle class or upper middle class or wealthy, you can disengage from a lot of stuff because it's not in your face, right? Right. You're not in Flint turning on purple water. water. Yep. Absolutely. You you don't. So until it, it bubbles up to a level of, ah, Mm-hmm. You can sort of go through the world like not knowing. So if you don't know it, you can't right. address it. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out who the who the we is, though. I think that's all where us, all of us have for those people who are doing the work you're doing. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're doing the work of saying you have this podcast, you're giving people information on the regular. Right. People yeah. don't always listen. They don't always want to hear it. They may yeah. start off and saying this is this is making me mad. Right. But the fact that it's making people mad. I know. I get what you're saying. It takes time. It's been 30 years. It's been 30 years. But part (laughs) of the problem is we've got people who haven't been doing the weeding. See, we haven't done the weeding on both ends of the spectrum. So back to that whole education as a process like manufacturing. Mm -hmm. See, we would never allow... If we were man- if we were an automobile manufacturer and yeah. all the blue cars came off the assembly line missing a fourth wheel, yes, how long would we let that go on before Correct. that company would be out of business? Right, and we would address it not by saying the blue cars aren't serious about transportation, right, and we wouldn't say the people working on the assembly line are undermining blue cars. 
we would recognize this is a design problem and we need to go in and see where is the manufacturing process broken. Correct. That's what we would do. Yes. So if you listen to my first episode from last season, that's how I start. I talk about the design flaw. Yeah. Right. But if people are wedded to the story that it's the blue car's inherent nature mm -hmm. to not have a fourth wheel, I could talk about design flaw until I'm blue in the face. But here's the, here's the upside of this. So when we look at how education is failing black children, and Native American it's not just, children. It's not just black children. It's right. um, it's failing. Right. The American educational system, public, private, parochial, is right. not competitive globally. Correct. Right. And we've known that for a long time. We've seen the demographics shifting in the admission rates of international students right. versus U.S. students. Okay. Correct. Even the U.S. students whose parents have paid $40,000 a year for them to go to private school, they still can't get in. Right. Okay. Because they're not competitive. What you're doing is important because you keep bringing us back to this unpleasantness that we don't want to look at. Yeah. Right. We have to have someone who's saying, would you be healed? Are you going to just sit here right. and talk yeah. about it? Yeah. Yeah. It's that. And I, I like I like your assembly line because I like that blue car with the, the missing fourth wheel. It is. I'm like, it is a design flaw issue. So and I'm kind of mad that my tax dollars have gone a trillion dollars have gone out on these ESSER funds. I'm like, to what? To do more what? after school tutoring? No, I don't want that. More summer school? I don't want that either. Tutors? Yeah. I don't want that either. Like, I want my money back. Well, the the issue about the sort of the truth and reconciliation piece of really acknowledging that while it's horrible to admit, there are too many of us yeah. who like this bifurcated structure. Mm -hmm. We like this class hierarchy. Mm -hmm. It's hard for us to acknowledge it because it runs counter to our founding documents. Yes. We need to just say out loud, yeah. like, here's what the real problem is, yeah. as opposed to all of the the mythology that we just buy into, which is keeping us from getting to our end result. Yeah. And it keeps us from acknowledging who is really enabling this dysfunction. Yeah. And those people need to be excised back to this work you're doing. Right. The vision hasn't yet been revealed to them. Mm -hmm. yeah. Write the and make it plain. And that's part of what you're doing. Somebody has to be the one to say, we can still make it happen. Yeah. We can yeah. still make it happen. So what, what, I mean, in your, in your sphere, in your world, how do you see us making anything happen? And I mean, it could be the smallest things. What are the things now in 2022 that we can make happen? Is it a push to extricate ourselves and create homeschools or alternative schools? Or is it trying to really dismantle the traditional school and such that we are not, and we being children of color and children with disabilities at the bottom of every marker year after year after year. Again, I think it's a both and. Okay. I am not a homeschooling advocate per se. Yeah. I'm not one of those people who thinks like, if you don't homeschool, you don't really love your kids. I don't, I'm not that person. Okay. 
<laughs> there are okay. people out there who say that? Oh, is that a thing? Are there t-shirts oh, yeah, that say? Who, oh. really, who oh, really God. believe if you really cared, if you really cared, you'd be homeschooling. I understand that. I understand that when Black people say, what Andre Lord said, you can't dismantle the master's house using the master's tools. Right. That's what I'm saying. Well, this extrication, do we extradite ourselves and go so that, that's rogue? One option. But mm-hmm. I like the idea of a multidimensional approach. So I think when we talk about this manufacturing challenge and what's happening mm-hmm. with schools, the issue of, for some of us, the work is in extricating ourselves mm-hmm. completely. For mm-hmm. others, the work is dismantling and reassembling. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for some, it's setting up an alternative universe. Yeah. So when my own children were children, I did not have the time or the energy to protect my own children, run this business, maintain this garden, and right. do this work yeah. for the community. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I yeah. think we all have to figure out where we are in the process of our own lives. I think, um, and I don't want to use terms like liberal or conservatives, but I think there are certain people in the population who are afraid to have those conversations Yes. Um, for fear of, I don't know why, you know, but just, yeah, that just well, never comes because up. We're not in community anymore. See, that's the other thing. We don't maybe, have... maybe, I don't know, but I just, I don't care what state I'm in. If I'm in Hawaii or Louisiana or New York or Wyoming, it is literally the same conversations. Yes. And it's this kind of pacifier conversation around, um, success and why certain groups of kids are successful or not. And no one really wants to kind of get deep and dirty. And so we just have these superficial conversations and nothing ever changes. And well, so, but I, I'm taking to light what you're saying about, about um, c- consistently bringing to light the real issues, deciding where to put one's efforts, mm-hmm. right? Can't do it all. Can't right. be with them. So that that's resonating with me. And then I think just being able to speak the truth, right? No matter what space I'm in. I mean, I think I'm jokingly saying to you, oh, no, Paula is saying this, the, the, the quiet part out loud. But just saying that, like going into a room of influencers and really saying, you know, let's cut the BS. I don't want to see another report from X organization. Again, it's the same stuff, right. you know? Whoop de doo this doesn't this doesn't do anything. So what are you going to do differently? Being maybe being that voice? I don't know, but it's it's gotta be something different rather well, than that yep. voice is I think that voice is important. And I think part of what and I agree with you. Mm-hmm. In community, that's where we can say the hard things to each other. Right. Because right? yes. we family. Yes, 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 yes. We family. When yes. we don't have that anymore, we can't have those hard conversations. Yeah. And we can't come together as a collective to address these issues. That's a great point. With that, Ms. Paula, thank you so thank much you for, for this conversation. This was, so much fun. this was fun. We've got to do it again. I'll have to bring you back on. Absolutely. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Schooled with Carla Hulse is available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Amazon Music.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.